quick uh, word of introduction before I dive into the teaching. If you are new or visiting with us, welcome. Especially, I want to welcome any of you who are new or visiting in, and kind of new to exploring spirituality, maybe new to investigating the way of Jesus. And one of the things that you will probably pretty quickly figure out about us at Sanctuary is that we are a group of people who believe that following the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live, even when that makes us a little bit peculiar sometimes. So we are at the end of a four-week or five-week series on forgiveness, which is a hallmark of the way of Jesus. And I know that that practice is a little bit unusual in our world today, but today we're going to be talking about reconciliation and specifically what's our role in repairing and mending broken relationships when we're the ones who have been wounded. And I know that this is a, is a peculiar practice in our world today. So if this seems strange to you, I want you to know you do not need to agree with everything that I am saying this morning. You probably won't. But I hope, my prayer is, that you will come away with some sense of why we find this way, this way of Jesus, this way of love, so compelling. And that's my prayer this morning. So to begin, I would like to see just a quick show of hands. How many of you have conmarried something in your house? How many of you have done the conmari method? Okay, a few hands. Who knows what the KonMari method is? Okay, great. I'm going to tell you what the KonMari method is. So, KonMari um, is a decluttering method that was uh, created by this woman, Marie Kondo. And basically, it's a way of going through your items in your house and, and radically decluttering your life. And what she advocates is that you pick up your items, you actually hold them in your hands, and you ask yourself, does this thing spark joy? And if it doesn't spark joy, you get rid of it. If it does, you keep it. And so, yeah, you go through your items and you ask yourself, does this spark joy? So as we are finishing up our series on forgiveness, and today I'm talking about broken or damaged relationships, I was thinking about how quickly in our society we toss broken relationships. And I had this thought, do you think anyone has ever conmarried their friendships? Gone through their friendships and said, does this friendship spark joy? So I Googled it, and sure enough, pages and pages and pages of articles about how to conmari your relationships. Now this is not necessarily a Marie Kondo approved application of this decluttering method, but nonetheless it is a very popular one. And so just to give you an example, one article that I read spelled it out this way. This woman who wrote the article, not Marie Kondo, um, said, you owe it to yourself every now and then to go through your friendships and kind of do a culling. And here's the questions you should ask yourself. Does this person spark joy in my life? What am I gaining from being friends with this person? And is this friendship still valuable to me? And basically her advice is if you answer no, no, this person doesn't spark joy, I'm not getting anything out of this, and this friendship is no longer valuable to me, her advice 
is to break up with that friend. She suggests doing it by text because it's more direct and it's less awkward than doing it in person. But if you cannot bring yourself to send a breakup text to your friend, her secondary advice is just stop putting effort into the friendship and it will eventually die. This is an actual article out there giving you advice on how to do friendships. And so honestly, knowing the world in which we live, I'm not necessarily surprised that I found all these articles, but I am disturbed. Okay, I'm disturbed. The first reason I'm disturbed is that we are literally objectifying people here. We are literally treating people the same way we treat the jeans that don't fit anymore and the muffin tins that we have 12 of and all the shampoo bottles under the sink. We are literally treating people that way. So we are objectifying people. That's one reason I'm disturbed. But the other reason I'm disturbed is because this idea of conmarrying our friendships this is such a poignant example to me of the consumeristic, self-obsessed spirit of the age in which we live. The way of life all around us that we have come to see as normal, but is so counter to the way of Jesus. I think this illustrates that perfectly. So before I continue, I want to give a giant caveat that I would want to trust that you will apply to the rest of the sermon. I'm going to really press us today to not throw away relationships, to invest, to love, to continue to, to do the hard work of reconciling, even when we're the wounded party. But the giant caveat I want to give is that I am absolutely not ever today talking about abusive relationships. Okay, any relationship that is physically, emotionally, spiritually abusive where you are in harm's way, the, nothing of what I'm going to say today applies to that. If you are being abused, the best thing you can do is to get out, establish boundaries, let that relationship die. That is just, that, I, that caveat needs to be there. Um, and if you have ended an abusive relationship, I do not want you to hear this message and second-guess that choice. Okay, so that, that caveat, I want you to apply that to everything else that's being said today. Because what I'm talking about today is normal, non-abusive relational conflict. The wounds that we inflict upon each other all the time. I'm talking about relationships that have become damaged or broken for some reason or another, people who have hurt you but are not abusing you, okay? Clear what we are talking about. I'm talking about, for example, two couples that I know who were next door neighbors, and they were very, very good friends, very close. They were the social hub of our neighborhood. They live in my neighborhood. The social hub of our neighborhood. They had neighborhood barbecues. We would go over into their shared kind of yard space. But then, you know, you parked your truck on my driveway and you stored your stuff across my line and I'm missing some things and I think you took it. And the next thing you know, there are F-bombs flying in the street at nine in the morning, cops being called, and then three years of ice cold silence and feuding. That is a relationship that I believe could have been reconciled. One of the couples moved away and so it never was. That's what I'm talking about. The other thing that I'm talking about, and this, I'm gonna press something here that may strike a nerve. It actually might offend you, but it's something that along this lines of kind of conmarrying our friendships, 
disturbs me. It's a, a trend that I see that disturbs me. I have seen so many posts on social media, and again, if, if you've posted something like this, in all humility and gentleness, I am going to press something. I have seen posts about, I'm done with negative people. I, I am eliminating negative people from my life. I am cleaning house. I, am, I don't have time for negative people. You guys seen these posts, right? So I don't know the context of these posts. It's possible you're talking about an abusive, harmful relationship that, yes, needs some boundaries. It's possible. But if it's not, here's the thought. I'm just going to be honest. Here's the thought that goes through my mind when I see something like that. We can do everything we can to put up a boundary, put up a fence, and keep all the negative people on that side of the fence. But what are we going to do about the negative culture on this side of the fence? The negative culture of our hearts that says, I have the right to be insulated from your stuff. The negative culture of my heart that is judgmental and says, this person is irredeemable and disposable. What am I going to do about that? I can put up a fence and say, all the negative people, you stay on that side. What am I going to do about this in here? So just to be, just to press that, this is what I'm talking about this morning. But this is the water that we swim in as a society. <clears throat> this is what feels normal to us. So when somebody hurts us, it's completely normal for us to shut that relationship down, to stop talking to people, to ignore people in public in the name of boundaries, which again, sometimes are really important. Greg and I have people in our life we have to have very strong boundaries with. We're not anti-boundary, okay? But in the name of boundaries, kind of putting up walls and fences that eventually kill the relationship. And then in our minds, we say, well, this is normal. Conflict kills relationships. That's what we believe is just normal. And maybe some of you in the room right now think I'm crazy to even say it's not normal. But this is what it means to be followers of Jesus who are set apart, called out, different, peculiar people. We need to be willing to take a good hard look at the water that we swim in and ask ourselves, is this the way of Jesus or not? And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask, is this the way of Jesus? We all know that relationships are messy. But in the KonMari school of relationships, the only way to clean up that mess is to throw things out. And I want to call that into question today. Because I think that Jesus, the way of Jesus, and the way of love has a better solution to cleaning up the relational messes in our life. Okay? So that's what I want to do this morning. So first, I think it's really important that we understand, before we get to the how of reconciliation, that we understand why reconciliation is such an important value in the kingdom of God. Why is this so central to the heart of God? Why is this something that I'm going to urge you to go to great lengths to pursue? Why is this important? And this is where our text comes in this morning. So if you want to open in your phone or your Bible to John 17, I'm going to stay in those four verses uh, for a little while here. So the context of John 17, 
This is the night before Jesus died. And uh, Jesus has shared a final meal with his disciples. We commonly refer to that as the Last Supper. After the meal, he washes his disciples' feet. He begins to teach them and give them some final instructions. And then in John's Gospel, the whole chapter, chapter 17, he goes before the Father and prays for his disciples. And what's amazing about this prayer, so he starts by praying for his friends in the beginning of the chapter, and then at verse 20, he prays for us. So if you didn't know that recorded in Scripture is a prayer that Jesus prayed for us, here it is. My prayer is not for them alone. It's not for the disciples, the apostles alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Jesus is praying for us in this prayer. And so the thing, the one thing, the primary thing that Jesus is going before the Father and asking the Father for on our behalf is that we would experience unity. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is the thing that Jesus asks the Father for for us, unity. But a couple things that I want to say about this unity. The first thing, this is a really specific type of unity. This is not just that you and I would be friends or that we would like each other or even that we would love each other. That honestly is not that unique, okay? We can do that. Jesus is asking the Father for something really specific here. What he's praying for is that we, as people who follow him, the church, we would be in him and would be united with him just as in verse 21, he is in the Father and the Father is in him. He prays, may they also be in us. May the church be in us. So Jesus is praying that we would experience unity with one another as we are wrapped up and welcomed into the perfect union that he experiences with the Father. And so the essence of the unity that Jesus is praying for, this is not just one-dimensional between you and me, that you and I would experience unity. This is multi-dimensional. It is that we would be united to God and therefore unified among ourselves. So uh, an image or a way to um, kind of see this visually would be like a triangle. So if I'm over here, I'm gonna try not to fall off the stage. If I'm over here and, there's a, and someone else is over here, kind of a, a one-dimensional one unity would be we're moving towards each other on this straight line. When we add God, and I'm gonna put him up here as sort of the third point of the triangle, the unity that Jesus is praying for is that as you and I are moving towards being united with Christ, we actually, like a triangle, become, we experience unity with one another as we are united with Christ. Does that make sense? The closer we become in our union with Christ, we experience unity as the body. And so this is a very, and this is actually something that is unique to the experience of the church. This is not, you know, there are beautiful examples of unity in the world outside the church, but what Jesus is asking for 
Unity that is located in our union with God, that is something very specific that only the church can experience. And so the implication of this kind of unity is that our life together as the body would be, it is, inextricably linked to the life of God, to the life of heaven. If our unity with one another is located in our union with God, we actually cannot explain or understand or know our lives as a body. We cannot explain that or understand that apart from the life of God. Our experience of what it means to be the church and to do life together becomes a reflection of the life of God. We are the earthly embodiment of the life of heaven. Our unity, our life together, is located in our union with God. So I understand that that is a very complex, abstract idea. But um, the importance of this idea, the significance, the reason that this is important, is that the purpose of this unity is not just for our emotional well-being, our enjoyment, though those things are significant as well. The purpose of this unity that Jesus is praying for, in verse 21, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's so that the world would know who God is and what he is like. This is a purposeful unity. Verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so again, this unity that is located in our union with God, this is not just for us. This is to be a prophetic witness to the world about what the life of heaven is like. One scholar says that the purpose of this unity is so that the world may not only hear that Jesus is Lord, but see that he has the power to transform fallen men and women into the likeness of God and to bring about the kind of community that the world needs. So if that is super abstract, which it is, and I'm sorry, uh, here's an image, a metaphor, that I think may help us to understand what this is actually like. And this is the image of an orchestra. So an orchestra is designed to play a symphony The only reason you gather an orchestra together is to play a symphony. It's so that other people who are not in the orchestra can hear and recognize and enjoy a piece of music. But the only way for that orchestra to do that is they need to operate as one. And so they need to tune to the same pitch. They need to play the same song at the same time. They need to follow the same tempo. And so they follow the conductor. And as they follow the conductor, they operate as one. As each musician aligns themselves with the conductor, they operate as one, and they are able to play the symphony. In the same way, that's just like the church. We are designed to reflect the image of God, to show the world what God is like. But the only way that we can do that is to be unified and to be operating as one and reflecting an accurate image. We are supposed to show the world what God is like. If we are not in union with God, we will show an inaccurate image. And so the only way for us to do the thing that we were designed to do is for each of us to tune ourselves to the conductor, to our conductor, 
And as we do that, we become unified with one another and we reflect an accurate image of who God is. If we're out of tune, if we are off tempo, if we are missing the entire string section, we are not accurately able to reflect to the world what God is like. So that is the purpose of this unity, the specific unity that happens in the church when we're located, it's located in our union with God as we accurately reflect to the world what God is like. So that is why we care so much about reconciliation, because here's the problem. That unity is fragile because we are broken people. We will hurt each other. We will wound each other. We will, our relationships will become damaged. And so I think that the key skill that has to do with our unity, maintaining this unity, is not that we would all be the same. It's not that we would all think exactly the same thoughts. It's not that there would be no conflict. It's a fierce commitment to reconciling when there is. And that's why I think this is so critical that we understand how to reconcile when relationships in this body become damaged. The epistles are full of exhortations to this effect. Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The church, we hurt each other. And so we need to be committed to forgiving and to reconciling and mending damaged relationships. So that's all the big why. I want to kind of get into the how. What is reconciliation and how do we pursue it? So reconciliation is a process of restoring a damaged or broken relationship. And the purpose, for the purpose of this sermon, I'm only addressing personal reconciliation. Part B of this sermon could be systemic reconciliation. And that's, I'm not gonna talk about that today, but know that that is a category. I'm talking about interpersonal reconciliation. But in any case, when we talk about reconciliation, there are two ingredients that are necessary for reconciliation to be possible. And that is forgiveness, which we've spent weeks covering, and repentance. When one of those is not there, reconciliation is not possible. So when a significant wrong has been done to us, the relationship is damaged and in some cases broken. Forgiveness alone does not automatically restore that relationship. Forgiveness heals us. And so again, that's what we've been talking about the last month. If, if this is your first Sunday here in this series, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, weeks of excellent content on forgiveness. But forgiveness is about us. It heals us. But reconciliation is about restoring that broken relationship. And so forgiveness involves one person. Reconciliation involves two. And there has to be genuine repentance in addition to forgiveness. And when I say repentance, I don't just mean an apology, right? So an apology is acknowledging wrong and saying I'm sorry. Repenting is changing the behavior. And so genuine reconciliation is possible 
when there is true forgiveness and repentance, turning from that, the error of my ways and changing. So that is just a little uh, note there. But when both of those things are present, healing is possible. And so for followers of Jesus, the image is of two people, the offender and the offended, meeting at the cross. One person comes with genuine repentance for their sin and finds that at the cross their sins are forgiven. And the other person comes with genuine forgiveness and finds at the cross that their wounds are healed. And everything in that relationship that was broken is put to death with Jesus and then with Jesus is resurrected to new life. The relationship has the possibility to be restored and to be resurrected. That is the image for Christians of what reconciliation is like. But that, so that is the, the vision. What about the how? How do we do that? And especially, how do we do that when we're the ones who've been wounded? How do we, what is our part, where does our part begin and end when we are the ones who have been hurt? Conventional wisdom, as I mentioned in the beginning, is that if you've been hurt, you shut down the relationship. You either move away from that person or you move against that person. Those are really the two options. I believe that the way of Jesus and the way of love invites us within reason and with some limits to move toward the other in love. The way of Jesus invites us to move toward the other in love. So to illustrate what I'm talking about, I'm gonna tell a story from my life, and it's kind of a sensitive story. So I'm actually gonna ask uh, Brad, who is uploading our recording to the podcast, to clip the recording right here. And then if you're listening on the podcast, I'll loop you back in at the end of the story uh, so you can have some, some of the gist at the end. So if you're listening on the podcast, I just shared a story about betrayal and humiliation. So everything was resolved on my end. There's no ongoing concerns about me. And yet I know this woman is my colleague and I am going to have to see her. She didn't live near me, um, so I didn't have to run into her every day, but I was going to a conference about six months after this and I knew that I would see her there. And I fretted about that for like six months and prepared and worried about it. And I also did the hard work in my own heart to forgive her. And then the first day of the conference, I saw her at the other end of a long hallway. And I thought, oh, here we go. We're going to talk. And so as I'm walking down the hallway and she's walking towards me, she turned her head to the wall and walked past me looking at the wall. She wouldn't speak to me. And that happened a few more times at this conference where we were in the same vicinity and she wouldn't make eye contact with me. So here I am, I want to be reconciled with this person. I am ready to forgive her, I have forgiven her, but she will not make eye contact with me. So the last day of the conference, I have my suitcases packed and I go to the last session with my suitcases. I have to go to the airport, but I go to the last session and the topic being preached on was about reconciliation. And there was a call at the end of the talk 
If there's someone in the room that you're not reconciled with, make the first step before you go to the airport. I'm looking down at my bags. Take the first step to be reconciled. So my heart starts to pound, <clears throat> and I think, I know I need to be reconciled with this person. We are not reconciled. But here's where the internal dialogue starts. Do I need to go find her? I, really, do I need to do that? She, I have already stooped so low. This experience has caused me to feel like I'm on the ground. Do I have to stoop even lower to be the one to go find her? Shouldn't she come to me? And so I'm kind of wrestling with God about this. But then here's the thing. If my metric for what is good and what is healthy and what is right is what will protect me the most and what will protect me from pain, then yes, I'm going to stand right here. But my metric for what is good and healthy and right is whether or not something aligns with the way of Jesus and what I know about Jesus is that Jesus stooped time and time again to move towards me. When I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me. And so, yes, I left my suitcases. I walked around that conference room like four times until I found her. And I walked up to her and I said, friend, we need to be reconciled. And she struggled at first, but then she broke down. She apologized. We hugged each other. We prayed with each other. We repaired the damage that was done. And so it's not like she and I are best friends, but I have interacted with her a dozen times in the last decade. And I can remember a really specific time where the Lord used her to minister to me in a very powerful way. She and I are reconciled. What, to go back to that orchestra analogy, we can sit next to each other in the orchestra. We are playing the same song. We are tuned to one another. But that took me walking across the room, stooping lower, moving towards her when everything in me says, I wanna just stand here, move away from her or against her. I believe that that is the way of Jesus. So some of you in the room have somebody in your life that you know and you're thinking about right now that you are not reconciled with. And I want to encourage you to take the first step. And I want to spell it out really clearly. Where does your responsibility begin and end? We get this from Matthew 18. First, we forgive. We are obligated to forgive. 70 times, 7 times. We've been forgiven so much. We are obligated to forgive. Again, that's been our whole series. But next, from Matthew 18, we go to them. When it is safe, when, when that is a wise thing to do, and again, apply all the caveats. But with this woman, she's a lovely person. We just had a damaged relationship. You go to them. You give them an opportunity to repent. That's what I was doing. Giving her an opportunity to repent. If they don't listen, then you go, again, from Matthew 18, you get some church leaders, you go a second time. If they don't listen then, that's when you can walk away. But if you've never tried, if there's someone in your life who hurt you and you never told them that they hurt you. There's someone in your life that you have given the cold shoulder to 
and have never given them a chance to repent, I think what I read in scripture and what I know of the way of Jesus is we owe them, we owe the opportunity to allow them a chance to repent. Our primary posture, reflective of Jesus' posture, is to move towards the other in love. And I think when we live in an awareness of how much Jesus has moved towards us, that actually just becomes a natural way of life for us. We move towards the other in love because Jesus has moved towards us. So to close, without Jesus, we do live in a KonMari world. The only way to clean up the mess is to throw things out. But I believe that the way of Jesus offers us something different. It offers us healing, mending, repairing broken things. Jesus has a different way of life. He offers a different way. And our commitment to reconcile with one another for the sake of this unity, it becomes a prophetic witness to the world about who this God is. This is the God who moves towards the other in love. And nowhere is this demonstrated more clearly than at the cross. Martin Luther King said that the cross is the eternal expression of the length to which God will go in order to restore broken community. It's the e eternal expression of the length to which God will go to restore broken community. So what better place to close than by inviting us to the communion table where we remember the reconciliation with God that Jesus purchased for us on our behalf by continuing to stoop, by moving towards us, by giving his life for ours when we had so brutally rejected him, humiliated him, wounded him, cast him away. Jesus stooped and endured the cross so that we could be reconciled to him. And so before we um, actually come to the communion table, I wanna just to open up a couple minutes of space. Worship team is gonna play. You can just stay in your seats. And I want to just invite you to reflect on two things. One, is there someone in your life that the Lord is inviting you to walk across the room to find? And maybe literally in this room, but I mean more figuratively. Is there a text you need to send? What does moving towards the other in love look like in that relationship? Reflect on that. And also reflect on the way that Jesus has moved towards you in love over and over and over again. Again, when we are aware of how much we've been forgiven, we forgive more freely. So take a few minutes to reflect, a couple minutes, and then I will come and invite us to the communion table.